You're listening to So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast about the world of writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, where you'll find writing courses, resources, and a wonderfully supportive writing community. I'm usually co-hosting this podcast every week with the very talented Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author extraordinaire. Her latest book is The Wolf's Howl. I'm without Alison in this in-between episode, so I'm going to treat you to a story session. Just you, me, and our guest author of the week. This is where you hear the first chapter of a book that we recommend, usually read by the author, along with some insights into their writing life. Think of it as having your own private reading delivered straight to your ears. We're bringing the literary salon to you, so you don't even have to leave the house. This week, I've chosen The Last Guests by J.P. Pomare. This is another chilling literary thriller from the award-winning J.P. Pomare, whose previous books are Tell Me Lies, In the Clearing, and Call Me Evie. You can listen to a full interview with J.P. in episode 269 of So You Want to Be a Writer. Here's the blurb from The Last Guests so you can find out a little bit more about what it's about. Lena and Kane are doing their best to stay afloat. Money has been tight since Kane returned from active duty and starting a family is proving harder than they thought. Putting Lena's inherited lake house up for rent at weekends seems like the solution to at least one of their problems. The secluded house is more of a burden than a retreat anyway, and fixing up the old place makes Kane feel useful for once. But letting strangers stay in their house might not be the best idea. Someone is watching their most mundane tasks, their most intimate moments, and all the things Lena and Kane want to keep hidden will be exposed. Now, before he reads from his novel, JP has answered some questions about his writing process, which we've asked him, because we know that our listeners love getting insights into how a book is written. So now, here is JP Pomare. Hi, I'm JP Pomare, and I'm the author of The Last Guests. Valerie asked me to record the answers to some questions before I narrate the first chapter. So here goes. The first question, what inspired me to write this story? Well, um, I, I guess I'll begin by saying we rented out or we uh, listed our apartment in Melbourne City, well, in South Yarra in, in Melbourne, um, on Airbnb. And... I think the first sort of inspiration I had for the story was just thinking about this kind of uh, exchange um, where someone lets a stranger stay in their property and, and sort of the the access, um, what what's required to access this property and how sort of tenuous that is and um, and how vulnerable you are when you do open your property up. But on the flip side of that, I also began to think about guests who would stay at our property and what they would think, um, you know, whether they would go through our things, should we lock our passports away and that sort of thing. So it was sort of just thinking about worst case scenarios, you know, especially in those early days, I think the first time you do something like this, um, you, you begin to imagine everything that could go wrong and I think that's a really interesting place to begin when you start to write a story. Um, you know, that that's what the setup is. And I think the setup for this book um, is, is 
a pretty obvious one. I think I think you do know something is going to go wrong, and I think you can guess what. But how it all plays out is hopefully what draws readers to this um, to the story. So that's that's sort of what inspired me. But I was also inspired by the place that's set in Lake Tarawera, which is a beautiful lake uh, in, in New Zealand, where I'm from, um, between there and Auckland. And I wanted to also write about uh, some of the tensions that exist between. Um, a place that has full-time residents that's really idyllic and then holiday makers who have holiday properties and also you know tourists and visitors to an area um, especially in New Zealand where there has been in the past tensions with um, freedom camping and these sorts of things and and the stress that puts on infrastructure that's usually uh, will only um, is only required to support a small number of full-time residents the second question, can you describe your writing process? Well, um, it's different for every book. Um, I, I'm beginning to learn and my agent will often sort of point this out to me that my process isn't clean, um, it's not well plotted, it's not direct. I, I sort of meander and I make a lot of mistakes along the way um, and that's always in service of trying to excavate the best possible story and what I mean by that is I will um, and I have no problem scrapping drafts I have worked a lot on if I know that it's for the greater good of the story and if I know um, that it's potentially impeding a stronger story and what I mean by that is I think I spend um, I might spend a lot of time on a draft but if I get to the point where I know uh, that my uh, that because of how much time I've spent on it, I'm, I'm no longer prepared to make hard decisions. I know at that point um, that I need to go back to the beginning and really think about my first vision for the novel, and I'm pretty committed to that. I'll write for at least a couple of hours a day, every day, regardless of where I'm at in the uh, in the process. If I'm editing, it usually is longer because I find that less intellectually fatiguing than pure creation which happens you know in those early drafts um, but at least a couple of hours a day I also um, try to write in the morning but I but that tends not to happen for me so much but I think it is good to get a good start and get those runs on the board nice and early um, but in saying that I also write in bed at night so I sort of space it out across the course of the day. What was the most challenging aspect of writing this book? Number three I think for me it's just that thing I just um, touched upon. It's this kind of um, commitment, I think, to my vision of the story and and what that means is I will, as soon as I, I'm not feeling it anymore, I will scrap an entire draft. And I think uh, two or three times I, I could cut you know, the story back by anywhere from 60 to 80%. So... Um, you know, there was a draft that was up around 100,000 words and then the next draft of those 100,000 words I probably only retained about 20,000. Um, I, I, at one stage, completely, um, uh, I guess I, I restarted almost. I, I, I got rid of everything except the first four or five chapters. I changed all the characters and I restarted after a draft. So that, that just, the, the most challenging aspects about writing this book was um, that I, knew and appreciated that this is a great concept and I and I wanted to do that justice and I wanted to make the most of the premise. Um, the setup being a, you know, being about Airbnbs and people installing cameras and, and rental properties and that sort of thing. 
you know, that, that, that has the potential for so many different sort of stories and you can pursue so many different avenues. But for me, it was crucial that that remained uh, at the heart of the story. The centerpiece of the story had to be about voyeurism and it had to be about the, the Airbnb aspect of it or the um, short-term holiday rental aspect of it and the creepiness, and I want us to tap into both sides of that. I want us to tap into the people who are thinking about, you know, listing their properties on these websites, but also I wanted to tap into how creeped out people would be staying in these places, knowing uh, the potential for voyeurism and knowing the potential um, for, you know, surveillance uh, and, and what that means, you know, what their rights are in terms of privacy. Um, so to get that right, and that, that's what the challenge was, was to get that right and incorporate it in a story that remained truly gripping as well. <clears throat> what was the most rewarding aspect of writing this book? Fourth question. Um, the most rewarding aspect of writing this book, I think, was uh, part of the research was speaking to um, and corresponding with uh, some really interesting people. Um, so I spoke at length with someone who helped inform policy um, in the UK, uh, helped inform policy, so I was dealing with politicians and, uh, and the police and, and um, also surveillance uh, who were tasked with sort of trying to break up and catch um, pedophile rings and, and rings of those involved in sort of the distribution of child exploitation material. And so... Um, we yeah, the, it's the guy's name's Jimmy, and we had a um, few good chats, and there was some truly, you know, horrendous things, as I'm sure you can imagine. And what I found staggering about that was just how far behind the eight ball, you know, um, these big international organisations are. There's so much cooperation because everyone wants to stop this. So there's so much cooperation between uh, different, um, you know, agencies tasked with protecting you know the, the children their citizens and tasks of breaking this these rings and so um i found that i found that that just fascinating the challenges that they face but he wasn't the only person i spoke to i also spoke to uh, members of the new zealand sas um or i should say former members of the new zealand sas who served in in afghanistan and and who um have still have you know some contact with their unit but what was quite sort of rewarding about this aspect of the research was um, just just learning, you know, um, what these soldiers and elite units go through, the training, um, what it means to them, but also what life is like after. And there's a really great quote that's in the book, you know, these people are trained to kill, but you can't untrain that as soon as you've desensitised someone to the act of killing. Um, they, they, they no longer will feel anything um, and that's when we sort of start to see a departure from uh, you know empathy and, and we start to see you know some of the people that do come out of war zones that are deeply troubled and and go on to um, you know commit other further well commit crimes when they, when they return and um, have really troubled relationships and um, yeah so so just speaking with them and understanding that was was pretty fascinating as well and finally speaking with a paramedic because one of the characters is a paramedic in the book um and just yeah I, I guess I gave him license to tell me 
the most interesting things he's seen and experienced on the job and his experience in both London and in um, New Zealand. And, you know, that was that was pretty cool. I, I, I didn't go on a ride along or anything because so much of this research happened, uh, you know, during the pandemic. But um, I did really feel like I got to be inside the ambulance and I got to sort of hear firsthand about some of these um, cases that he goes to and, and what he sees on a day-to-day basis and so that was that was pretty cool as well so I think the most rewarding aspect in general was just the research for this book was was a lot of fun question number five what are your top three tips to aspiring writers well three might be asking a lot Uh, and those of you who are familiar with um with my approach and and with my sort of I guess my uh my belief when you are developing as a writer is to sort of learn um, functional rules, you know, uh, grammar, for instance, um, but really to sort of trust your instincts early on. So when people do talk about um, tips and, and that sort of thing and rules for writing, um, I, I, I tend to be in the camp where that says there are really no rules with this sort of thing. Um, that being said, you know, as general and as boring as some of these things are, I'll give one or two of the things I've, I found really helpful. Um, one thing I'd say is be pragmatic in your your approach depending on what your sort of end goal is with this. If all you want to do is write for yourself and you don't ever want to be published, um, this may not apply to you. But if you want to publish novels, for instance, um, you, there's definitely pragmatic steps you can take. Um, you don't want to just sit in your house and write out 60,000 words and send it to every publisher in Australia and cross your fingers because you might as well buy a lotto ticket. It, it tends not to happen that way. I think when I say be pragmatic, I think write short stories, um, write articles, write everything and try to get one or two things um, published or at least get some personalised rejections um, into short story competitions, that sort of thing. Join writers groups. Um, when I say be pragmatic, all this is doing is helping you develop as a writer. You're going to start getting feedback from other writers. Um, you're going to start to develop um, your craft. <clears throat> the other thing it does is you get points of validation along the way. So if you are submitting to short story competitions, when you get shortlisted for one or when you win one or when you get a personalized rejection, you can recognize that you've made progress because you go, you might go for a year without hearing anything. Then suddenly after a year, you realize your writing's got, gotten good enough that you are attracting shortlistings or um, personalized rejections, or, or you may even be winning or being accepted for prizes. And I think when that happens, you, um, like I said, you know you've grown as a writer. But something else happens is you suddenly have, as small as it may seem, a, uh, a publishing history. And then when you do query agents or you do submit to publishers, you can you can definitely point that out to them and it's going to help you get closer to the top of the slush pile or it's going to help you get attention. Um, so I think you can be pretty pragmatic. That would be my first tip. My second tip um, for writing is, again, it's pretty boring and pretty one you've heard a million times, uh, but I'll say it again. Um, I think you have to, you just have to squeeze in some writing every single day, even if it's five minutes. Um this is for two reasons. One, you're building the habit of writing. It's like going to the gym or running or whatever. If, if it's a healthy sort of exercise, and I believe it is, and if it's 
a, a goal you have, um, then you ha- it has to become habit because then you'll do it even when you don't really feel like doing it. Um, and, you, and you'll find that you just do it every day. The other thing that happens if you write every single day is you don't ever really leave whatever it is you're writing. You don't really depart that world for long enough to forget about it. So when you have a break from writing, if it's a day or two days or a week or whatever, when you come back to that project, you, are, you have to fully immerse yourself in that world again. Uh, you have to sort of capture the voice again. You, you have to kind of inhabit, as I said, those characters. And that, that doesn't happen quickly unless, you know, you, would, you never really left it to begin with. And if you write every day, then you're sort of touching that story and you've got your hands all over it every single day. And then when you come back, you can dive in much easier. It's much smoother. Um, and you know sort of where you left off. Um, and finally, the third, my third piece of advice I would say, and you're doing it right now, is um, engage the community, uh, the writing community. So even listening to podcasts helps. Um, but joining writers groups, which I probably touched upon earlier, um, is brilliant. Even if they're online, join book clubs, go to book launches. Um, all these things are, are, are so helpful because one day you're going to get your book, book published and people will turn up to yours because you turn up to theirs. But not only that, um, the book will be better because you've been reading all sorts of contemporary Australian fiction or historical fiction or whatever you're into. Um, but you've you've joined a book uh, a writing group, so you've been getting feedback on your work as well. So, engaging the communities in in multiple ways from different angles with different people is always going to help you grow as a writer as well. Um, so, those are the questions. Now, I'm going to narrate the first chapter of my book. It's called The Last Guests. This is the prologue. Here's anybody. Everybody, nobody, a black jacket, blue jeans, baseball cap, and black sneakers. That's what the neighbours would see if they happened to glance out the window as he passed through the front gate and crossed the three metres of cobbled path to the front of the house. His heart is steady, his hand is still as he punches the code into the silver safe bolted to the brick facade of 299 Hillview Terrace, 4139 Then it falls open and he's staring at a simple silver key and a long brass mortise key attached to a key ring in the shape of New Zealand. He pockets the keys, pulls his hat low and walks to the Ringle car parked on the street. He opens the boot, retrieves two large suitcases and wheels them to the house. He scans the entrance. No cameras, no surveillance. He slides the keys into the locks, first the antiquated bottom lock with the long brass key, then the modern lock. The door swings open, an arm inviting him inside. He drags the suitcases over the threshold and closes the door behind him. Open plan, as sterile and neat as a hotel room. Polished floorboards echo beneath his sneakers as he passes through the kitchen to the lounge room. Framed Ikea prints, a boxy couch that looks like it belongs in a furniture showroom, a beige rug. Outside through the sliding door, a tiled courtyard and potted lemon trees sit in the lukewarm sunlight. He checks out the other rooms. There's a study just large enough for a pine desk, a chair and a bookshelf. The bedroom is generous, a king-sized bed, a flat screen TV bolted to the wall and a wardrobe. He knows the place is booked this weekend and most nights this week. 
It averages seven bookings a month, which isn't surprising. It's cheap and not far from the CBD. Most importantly, it's available for single night bookings. Ideal for a one night stand. Perfect for his needs. He sets both suitcases down in the living room and opens them to reveal a handheld vacuum cleaner, a number of white cardboard boxes, cordless drill, screws, screwdrivers, chisels, a paintbrush and paint roller. He also has a plaster kit. His eyes roam the walls and the ceiling, his gaze coming to rest on the black pendant light fitting, hanging down. Lights are good. People tend not to stare directly at them. He takes one of the four chairs ringing the dining table and places it at the centre of the room before climbing up to examine the elaborate bowl-shaped design of the lampshade. He lowers himself back to the carpet again and pulls a Bluetooth speaker from one of the suitcases. He puts on music, Paint It Black by the Rolling Stones. With the volume up high, he climbs onto the chair again and begins drilling a tiny aperture. It's an expensive drill, much quieter than the splash of the cymbals coming from the speakers, the rolling thud of the bass drum. He hums the tune. Back down from the chair, he opens the white boxes, looking for the size he's after. Bingo, a three millimeter fisheye lens. He removes the camera, about the size of a pen nib. He climbs back up, presses it through the hole in the light fitting and fastens it into place. He returns to the floor and inspects his handiwork. Unless you knew exactly what you were looking for, you would never notice it. Next he goes to the bedroom, eyes searching. There's a smoke alarm. He could punch out the tiny light that only flashes when the battery is low and put the camera eye in its place. He brings a chair in from the lounge room, climbs up. As he reaches for the alarm, he hears something over the music and freezes. It's a rattling sound coming from outside. Could it be someone dragging the bin out? He doesn't move until the sound is gone. Then, exhaling, he completes the installation. The alarm won't work anymore. He takes the battery out just to be sure. Now the bathroom. He stops at the door and considers the layout. His gloved hands gently sliding across the wall tiles. He has to have a camera in here, but there is no obvious place to conceal it. If he puts one in the ceiling beside the fan, the steam will likely obscure the vision. And he needs to find somewhere that will capture both the shower and the rest of the room. Or use two cameras. He takes option B. Better to be safe than sorry. He runs hot water in the shower with the fan turned on and watches where the steam comes to rest on the surfaces. The glass on the shower screen, the mirror, the steel handrail next to the toilet. Anywhere lower than waist height is good. Any higher and you risk fogging the lens. The towel rail is attached to the wall with a small screw. That'll do. He carefully removes the screw, screw from the rail and replaces it with an expensive camera mounted in a screw head. Then he places the second camera in the light fitting above the mirror, just below the fan where there's no steam on the tiles. Back out in the hallway, the walls are thin plasterboard. Tapping with his knuckles, he finds the stud near the meter box and cuts out a square beside it with a jab saw. The hole is just large enough for his remote access 5G Wi-Fi router, which is already configured with the cameras. He can't stream through the house's Wi-Fi in case the host changed the password or have enough technical now to check how many devices are currently connected to the network. Then they would realize there are four extras unaccounted for, the four cameras. Some savvy travelers also have apps and devices which check to see if any cameras are running through local Wi-Fi networks. He installs a PowerPoint within the wall and plugs the router in. He finds a switchboard just inside the front door and opens it to reveal a panel of new circuit breakers. He runs the cable from the router through the same switch as the hot water service. Kill the hot water and the cameras will drop out. 
It's not ideal, but it's least likely to be switched off and a new circuit breaker might get noticed. Then he takes a piece of plaster from his kit, cuts it to shape, fitting it into the square to hide the router. He's a perfectionist. It's a flaw as much as an asset. He can't leave a job until everything is polished, finished. What calms him most is sanding down a jag in a wooden bench or buffing out a scuff and floorboards. The sort of work that serves him but doesn't pay well. This job has made him the most money and while this work may not be calming, it is oddly the most satisfying. There is enough risk to keep it interesting, but when you're this careful and precise, there's almost no chance of getting caught. Now he mixes a, a little plaster and smears it over the seams. While it dries, he goes to the kitchen, fires up his tablet, and logs onto the surveillance software. The screen shows a man and a cat hunched over a faux stone bench top. With boxes open on the carpet, of the adjoining lounge room, he clicks through each camera, the bathroom, a view of the shower, and then a view of the toilet and the bedroom. Shit, he says to himself, you idiot. The bedroom camera catches only two-thirds of the bed. He can see everything except the pillows. He grinds the heels of his palms into his temples. The bed yields the most sought-after footage. That's why he is here. He strides back into the bedroom, searching for a better spot. He could shift the smoke detector, sand and paint where it was, rewire it to a new spot. But a cleaner might notice if it has moved. A nosy cleaner might even take a closer look. That's the easiest way to lose his equipment and possibly get caught. I could turn the fittings so the camera's aim close to the bed, he decides. He climbs up to start turning the alarm fitting. As he examines it, though, he sees that the smoke alarm has a smear of paint. It's on one side from the last time the room was painted, he guesses. It's dusty too, clearly a few years old, and his gloved fingers have left tiny smudges. He chews his lip, his frustration growing. Should he put a second camera in this room? But where? How many viewers will I lose if I don't have the pillows in the frame, he thinks for a moment. Full HD streams with night vision, he tells himself. It doesn't matter if you miss the pillows, the viewers will still flood the streams. He wipes the dust on his shirt away and climbs down. Back in the lounge room, he takes a coin-sized chip of paint from the removed square of plaster and puts it in his pocket. Then he cranes his head out the front door, striding to the car. A modern white Toyota, the most forgettable car on the roads. He removes his hat and gloves, starts the car and heads up the street. He goes the long way around the park at the top of the street, taking the same route he had come in earlier. Same route to avoid the CCTV at the corner store. He drives north over the harbour bridge and west to a part of the city where no one would ever recognise him. The sign above the door reads speedy shoe repairs and key cutting. A man is grinding a key when he enters. As he waits with his head down, pretending to study a display of key rings near the counter. The grinder stops. The portly man blows away the steel files, rubs the key on his blue apron as he walks toward the counter. How can I help you? I just need a copy of these. He holds out the keys. These are the wise ones. Lost yours, eh? He answers quickly, the first thing that comes to mind. Mine are in the bottom of the Pacific. Right, the man says with a smile. Fisherman, you bet. The man takes the long mortise key now, peers closely at it. Don't see much like these these days. It's an old unit, still got the original lock as well as a deadbolt. You in a rush? I am, actually. It'll probably take uh, half an hour. That's fine. Five bucks for this one, and this one will be 29. 
He smiles. Sure. I'll grab a number to call you when they're done. I'll just come back in half an hour. The man's eyes linger on him for a moment. Suspicion, maybe. He's sizing him up. Right. He returns to the car, sits in the driver's seat, brings up the camera streams on his phone. With the curtains closed, the bedroom is dark, so he turns on night mode. The screen goes from black to a shade of green like the bottom of the sea. The shape of the bed is sharp. The pattern on the carpet is clear. It's good. Much better than he was expecting. The keys are ready and waiting for him when he returns. There's a tiny orange boy attached to the key ring. Now they'll float, the man says with a wink. Thanks, he says, annoyed that he's making himself more memorable. Easy to imagine this chipper bloke in a dim police interview room. Yeah, the fisherman, I remember him clearly. Maybe he should have done one kit, one locksmith, and the other at a different one. Maybe he should have kept his mouth shut. In the future, he'll be more careful. He pays cash, pockets the keys, and heads back to the car. He drives to another shopping strip with a hardware store. He finds an uninterested teenager leaning on his elbow over the paint desk. Hi, just need something that matches this. He lays the paint chip on the counter. Sure. How much? Enough for 10 metres. Takes five minutes to mix. When it's done, the youth paints the spot, blow dries it, and compares the dry paint to the chip. It looks perfect. Great, he says. Youth picks up the chip. I need that, he says quickly. Sorry? The teenager looks at him. The chip, give it to me. Okay, sorry I didn't. He takes the chip from the teenager's hand and turns, striding toward the checkout. Back at the house, wearing his gloves and hat once more, he tests the new keys and finds they both slide in and turn smoothly. The door unlocks. He can return whenever he wants. Some months from now, when the place isn't booked, he can slip in and uninstall the cameras. His repairs have dried while he has been out. In the kitchen, he lays out a sheet of newspaper before returning to the hallway to study the wall for a moment. Noting the original paintwork, the telling strokes, it was clearly a roller job, using decent paint that has been there for a while. His tin is enough to do the entire wall if he needs to. He has drop sheets with him. The fine sandpaper rasps as he smooths the edges of the new plaster. Then he cleans it with an alcohol wipe, fills the paint tray and begins rolling it on. Covering only the new square of wall and 10 centimetres around it, he paints. Then, while it dries, he repacks all but a few of the white boxes into his suitcase. Again, he finds the street empty when he opens the door. He quickly drags the suitcases back out to the rental, stowing them in the boot. He packs up the last of his things, pulls a chair out from the table, half closes the curtains, tips a third of the complimentary carton of milk down the sink. He sprays air freshener, hoping to neutralise the paint smell. He walks to the bedroom, pulls a small Ziploc bag from his pocket and opens it to pluck out one of the long blonde hairs inside. He lays it on a pillow. He'd collected them from the drain at a swimming pool across town. He pulls the blankets back on the bed and rumples the sheets. He empties the remaining five hairs from the Ziploc bag into the shower. Then he runs the hot water for a moment. He mops up a little of the water with one of the towels and leaves it on the floor. He does one last walk through searching for any sign of his presence, but everything is in place. Under the glow of the streetlight, he locks the keys away as per the instructions on the listing and gets into the rental car. Now he waits. 
Well, that is terrifying. The attention to detail is just, well, chilling. And if you want more spine-tingling chills, get your hands on a copy of The Last Guests by J.P. Pomare. It's out now with Hachette Australia. Now, I couldn't agree more with JP's advice to enter competitions and submit stories and articles. Yes, you may get a pile of rejections, but as you improve, you'll start to make long lists and short lists or even win. And it's a great way to connect with other writers and editors in the industry as well. If you're not sure where to start, make sure you check out our blog where we have a comprehensive list of short story competitions. And of course, there's our very own Furious Fiction Competition held on the first Friday of every month where you can win $500 and it's completely free. Go to writerscentercomau slash furious to find out more. And if you want to write your own thriller, there's no better place to start than our crime and thriller writing course. One of our previous graduates of crime and thriller writing is Shankari Chandran, who has gone on to publishing success with her novel, The Barrier. Let's hear from Shankari now. When I first decided to do a course at the AWC, I had been writing for a few years. I had taken time out of my career as a lawyer to have our fourth child, and life was chaotic, but I had always wanted to write, and so I thought I would give it a go in between baby feeds and school runs and so on. I have just published The Barrier with Pan Macmillan Australia, and I'm loving it. For many years, being published felt like an impossible dream, like something that happened to other people. When I heard that I was going to be published, I was at Officeworks because I find buying stationery really therapeutic, and I put down my stationery and cried. The AWC's course has had a huge impact on my writing. It's changed my understanding of the thriller genre and my approach to writing it. Because of the clarity the course gave me, I feel far more confident doing it. I feel incredibly fortunate that my books have been published now. I love writing. It's energizing and meditative for me. I feel really committed to the stories I'm telling and I hope to keep doing it. Look, I would absolutely recommend the courses at the AWC uh, to friends, aspiring authors, anyone. I would say do a course, do lots of courses, and do them earlier rather than later on your writing path. It's worth it. To find out more, go to writerscentercomau slash crime. Thanks for listening to Story Sessions of So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find more details about the podcast and a wealth of writing resources and courses at writerscentre.com.au. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre. Do connect with us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at writerscentreau, and, of course, connect with us personally in our free podcast listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. Alice and I will be back to our regular programming in the next episode. Thanks for listening and I look forward to chatting to you again next time.